0: This is FemPower Power Health. Each week, top women's health experts dispel fact from fiction. The most important pelvic floor exercise is not the Kegel, Starts now. In today's episode, I interview Amy Divarania, and she is the co founder and CEO of UVA. We are talking about the misperceptions around our cycle, hormones, and ovulation. Typically, when I start the episode, we dive right into the information, but I thought it would be really helpful to start with Amy's background because I think it plays a pivotal role in the design of UVA and why it's so important for women to understand the information gleaned from this product. Before we dive in, a couple of announcements. One, if you like this episode, please do rate it and write a review because that's how we ensure this gets at the top of people's playlists. And since I can't cover everything on the podcast, I do post a lot of tips and tricks on Instagram, so do follow me at FempowerHealth. Also, there's a lot of products that are discussed in my episodes, and I do post those in my FempowerHealth shop, so check that out on my website as well. So without further ado, let's talk to Amy.
1: Um, So a little about me. Um, I have a pretty heavy science background. Um, I have a PhD in biomedical sciences, focus on genetics. Um, but I actually come from industry. So I was a data scientist at Roche for about five years and then a researcher at Bristol Myers Libs. Prior to that, I was at BMS and I realized that like there was this like pivot happening in the biotech space where just having like a biology degree was no longer enough. And I thought there was a lot of cool stuff happening on the digital side of biology. So what the new field was called was bioinformatics. So being able to like take computational work and actually apply that in the wet lab phase. Um, and then the niche that I really enjoyed was the genetics component. And that's kind of where my journey began on um, the data science piece, getting my master's in bioinformatics, working at Roche as a data scientist, really evaluating um, across all of these areas. I was working in virology, inflammation, oncology, and just supporting those projects to help them optimize all of their analytics. And it was so much fun. But I ended up wanting to go back to school and do my PhD in um, genetics specifically. So I found myself here at UVA because I actually went through a pretty difficult time trying to conceive my son. Honestly, I never saw myself starting a company. I thought I would be in a biotech or like I I didn't really wanna go back to pharma but I wanted to do something to make a difference, right? That was like my underlying theme throughout my life. How do I make the biggest impact? Um, And so as I was coming to the end of my PhD, I realized that I found a really big gap in the space, especially in the space of women's health, right? Um, I have been trying to conceive my goal being a super type A person was the moment I set my dissertation date, I was like, all right, nine months prior, let's get pregnant. And so then my water breaks during my defense and I no longer have to present and I'll just get my PhD. That was the goal. <laughs> so
0: we, we all have our grand plan, don't we? <laughs>
1: Well, I learned very quickly that I missed my like, I was no longer way past my um, dissertation date, unless if like I had a super creamy baby, which I didn't want. Um, And I realized that it was actually like not happening for us, right? We were not getting pregnant. Uh, We did decide that we wanted to pursue parenthood naturally and not go down the invasive route, mostly because I just didn't think I could deal with the loss um, of like a failed cycle or potential miscarriage. I have so much respect for women and couples that are going through that journey. It's, it's like a different level of heroism in my mind. I don't know how you do that. Um, But I just, I didn't think I could emotionally or mentally go through it. So we agreed, we being me, my husband agreed that we were going to try to pursue this naturally. We kind of had the cards stacked against us. I've had a regular cycle my whole life. My husband and I were both a little older when we started trying we were already well into our 30s. And then um, I also have an autoimmune disease. I have celiac. And infertility has been affili- like shown to be affiliated with celiac disease. Despite all that, we, we were pretty headstrong that we're going to go about this naturally. I started doing everything right. I started peeing on sticks every morning. I took my body temperature, 4.30 a.m. on the dot every single day. I used every fertility tracking app. And luckily, after 18 months, I conceived my son. But those 18 months were the most devastating of my life. And the worst part was, I didn't really learn or understand anything new about my cycle. All I found out was that I had irregular ones, and I knew that going into my journey. I also quickly realized that all of the tools I was using were basically hardwired for that woman who had a perfect 20 to 32 day cycle. And there's this fine print on all those tools saying, if you have irregular cycles, our data or our results are not reliable for you. So I was like, well, that doesn't help me. Yeah, and fine
0: print too, right? <laughs> right,
1: exactly. I'm like, that's, that's not helpful. So as I thought about it, I was like, the piece that is missing is really understanding what my hormones are doing because our reproductive cycles are driven by hormones. They're dictated by that. So if I understood how my hormones are behaving, I would know exactly what to do with my cycle or what to do and when to do it. So that's really where the idea for UVO was born. And now what we've developed three years later is an at-home test that monitors multiple key fertility hormones through your urine, so completely non-invasively and in the privacy of your own home. That was a pretty key component for us, that it had to be done in a very comfortable way, non-invasively, and be affordable. Because going in for blood draws is just not it.
0: <laughs> you know, and and this is what we need is for those who've gone through experiences to be developing the products. I mean, what, what an amazing, you know, user experience test case, right? To really understand where some of the challenges were and And I know we've both gone through our um, fertility journey, and I'm glad that both of us have ended on a, a positive note with being able to have a child, and it is definitely hard regardless of the outcome. Having gone through my own too, and this is partly why I wanted to talk to you, is I also found through the journey how challenging it was to truly understand what was happening with my body, because I felt like the tools that were out there really looked at things at a surface level, and I was really lucky or unlucky, depending on how you look at it, where right when I started trying, I was told I was going to have trouble. So on the one hand, I never got to try and have fun. On the other hand, I knew right away. And I happened to run across Tony Weschler's book, um, Taking Charge of Your Fertility, and it really outlined how the body's supposed to work. So I had that, but from the tool perspective, it was incredibly challenging. And even to this day, I just see all the changes in my body and I've been wishing and hoping for tools that really do measure these hormones. Um, so it's great to see that a product like Uva is out there. Now, let's start with the statement you made about how the existing track tracking apps at the time were really more for the average, because it's surprising to see that even today with Instagram, Facebook, these tools, how there's still a shocking number of women who still believe that there's a normal cycle. And so I'd love for you to talk about that, especially because you now have data and data is so critical to help inform us. And we can probably do a whole other podcast on why women are educated about these things. (laughs) So let's just start with the data that you're gathering and and helping women understand this misnomer of typical.
1: Let's do a little bit of a history lesson, right? Sure. Like, why is there a definition of normal? I think like, first of all, you have to remember that the the age that women are starting to have their first child is progressively increasing as the decades go on, right? So, like, we're, I think now the, the average age of women who are trying to conceive their first child is around 27. When, if you go back to, like, 2000, it was around 24. So, even in the span of two decades, like, we're talking about a pretty drastic increase. And it makes sense, right? Women are just trying to get pregnant later in life. We have goals of, like, furthering our career, achieving higher education, and don't want to plan to have a child until we've achieved a certain point in our professional or educational career. Well, all the tools that exist until like I want to say in the past five, six years have been developed in the 1960s. And at that point, women were trying to conceive much earlier in their fertile years, right? Early twenties. And your cycle is much more regular at that time. So there has been this like conception or this model that was generated back then where women have this beautiful LH surge that happens right right before and during ovulation. The progesterone has this beautiful curve that happens after an egg is released. That's really not the norm anymore. Women are having children much later. Our bodies have gone through so many changes in that time. And unfortunately, as we age, we don't ovulate every cycle. It's just biology doing its thing. It's gonna take us, years, decades, like centuries to get, to regulate our bodies, to match someone getting pregnant naturally at like 35, 40 years old. Evolution doesn't happen that quickly. So what we're realizing with UVA is that there really is no such thing as normal. And when women email me asking like, Amy, this is what my results look like. Is this normal? i like, it very well could be for you. What we're trying to do with UVA is really personalize the entire experience. So we capture what every woman's baseline levels are. We then detect fluctuations in your hormones that are comparing to that baseline. There's no threshold. The reason those previous tests didn't work for me is because they are threshold-based. The test is anticipating your hormone levels to surpass that threshold in order to get a positive result of whether you're ovulating or not. And unfortunately, if you have irregular cycles or irregular hormone levels, you may be consistently below that threshold or always above it. So the false positive and false negative rates are quite high for, for those tests. With UVA, because we capture what your baseline levels are, I don't care if your baseline is super high or super low. We're trying to calculate what that differential is between your daily hormone levels so that we tell you when you're ovulating based off of your data, not off of some mold that we're trying to push you into. And I think that's what a lot of the products today are trying to do. So we really embrace everyone's normal. Very interesting.
0: You know, as you were talking about the history, and I would never thought about this in all the years of being so passionate about women's health, is could birth control have also contributed to this misnomer of, you know, ovulate on day 14? Because, like, I know when I was on it for years, I think it was a 28-day cycle. And when I went off of birth control, my natural cycle was 26 days on the dot. It was consistent, but always 26 days. And then you're right over time as I've aged now because of perimenopause, it's fluctuating. And so, I I, I mean, again, I don't know how much data you have around that, but I'm just curious from what you've seen, do you think that could have also been why there's been this misnomer around this quote unquote normal cycle?
1: Absolutely. I mean, we still don't know what the long-term effects of birth control are, right? Like, we're getting the first batches of data, especially like with IUDs and these long lasting birth control medications. It's hard to know what the long-term effects are gonna be when it comes to your fertility. Yes, we have that early data saying like, okay, you get off, you, you are, you're you on this IUD for X number of years, like your fertility should bounce back after this many months. But we don't know what that return of fertility looks like yet across, like across a pretty broad population. So that data is still very fresh. We do have many users of UVA that have been on birth control for an extended period of time and are are now thinking of getting pregnant and are using UVA to kind of monitor their cycle. And yeah, we're seeing that like ovulation is not happening every month. Their LH levels are not hitting this like typical peak that we all are waiting for, right? To see that 100% on the the UVA test, like they're not seeing that, but it's okay. Because now what we're learning is that their LH surge is actually much lower than what they would have originally thought. Okay, and it's it's just a, getting that level of objective data. I think is really critical to understanding what your cycle is, and that's the piece that has been missing throughout cycle tracking for for generations. Having that objective piece to evaluate.
0: By the way, if anyone wants to take a deep dive into birth control, I did a three episode series that um, just concluded where I interviewed an MD a period expert, and then someone who, who's the CEO of a company that came out with a non-hormonal on-demand contraceptive. And it's a really interesting conversation just to see that controversy that's still alive, but interesting perspectives. So now let's talk about measuring hormones, because I remember in my cycle, like I remember I was doing the pee on the stick method for trying to do ovulation. I was also tracking. So my cycle was very consistent. So I kind of knew, but then over time I kind of wanted to double check things. Obviously I had a fertility clinic monitoring me cause so I was going to one for four years. And there was a point in time where, you know they started coming out with more advanced ones like smiley face, flashing smiley face. And then like, there were times where I wouldn't get the flash. So then I'm like, should I test twice a day? Like it was a mess. and. And so, you know, I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about why it's so important to understand these these hormones and how they interact and how they can impact ovulation and just a little bit more maybe use cases of the types of things you're seeing with women to maybe bring it to life. Because I find maybe that'll help really paint that picture because, you know, there's so many people posting about the simple facts, but I think bringing it to life might be a good way to help people understand why it's so important and maybe why there's confusion when the sticks are being used.
1: Yeah, that's a pretty loaded question. So I'll try I, to address I know, I know. And of-
0: by the way, I'm not at all saying, okay, everyone throw out your sticks.
1: I think <laughs> no, what's important
0: not. is everyone has choices. Everyone has options. I think it's important for everyone to have all perspectives and then you choose based on your information. So I don't want to be like Oprah where the beef companies come suing me, so.
1: (laughs) Oh my goodness, yeah. No, I don't think that's going to happen here. There's definitely like a solution for everybody. Right. Right. Um, So I guess let's kind of tease apart that question that you asked. Currently, really the only way to track your cycle, if you take UVA out of the equation, is to look at subjective symptoms that you're experiencing. So cervical mucus, I'm going to put BBT as a subjective thing because some of these factors can affect that that have nothing to do with ovulation. Um, and then also I'm gonna put the urine strips into that as well, because they are qualitative. You're waiting for that positive or negative. And it's funny that you're talking about that blinking smiley face, like that was developed very recently. And that's really right. where the level of innovation has stopped when exactly. it comes to those P-sticks. And I think that's a huge disservice to the women's health industry, right? We're talking about 51% of the population and we should be having some more innovation here. Like all of those tools that we just like listed out are basically designed for a perfect cycle. Like your BBT, if you're looking for trends there, it's really only reliable if you are cyclical and behave- your body's behaving in a certain way every single month or on a certain interval. If you have irregular cycles, that BBT measurement is not necessarily as reliable for you. Um, maybe it's worth kind of diving into what the different hormones are that kind of dictate your cycle. Um, there's really four that we should be concerned with. Um, And I'm going to tease a fifth one too. So um, your menstrual cycle is called a cycle because you're basically going through certain steps in a regular interval, theoretically. That interval or that the behavior that happens in different phases of your menstrual cycle are driven by hormones, solely by hormones. So the first one we're going to talk about is estrogen. So the whole purpose of estrogen is to indicate that a woman should, well, the first part is to actually help a woman start to grow her uterine lining and prepare it for implantation. If that's to happen, right? You have to remember your whole menstrual cycle is basically designed to help you conceive. That's like, that's the whole reason that you're having a menstrual cycle. Let's break up your menstrual cycle into two phases. There's the follicular phase and then there's the luteal phase and the various hormones have different roles in each of those phases. The first part of your follicular phase is your period. So if you haven't conceived in the cycle before, your uterine lining is shedding and you are basically cleaning out everything so you can optimize your body to conceive in the next cycle. Now, during this time, all of your hormones should be at their absolute lowest level, so basically zero. So once your period is over, the estrogen levels are gonna start to elevate slightly to help the urine line start to thicken again. Now, what the next hormone that, ma- that matters is LH. So as your estrogen levels are going up, it's actually going to indicate to your pituitary gland in your brain to release LH. And now LH is actually a pulsatile hormone. So it gets released in little bursts, right? So you can imagine now every day your LH levels are getting kind of like accumulating in your body. And at some point, it's going to get to a point where it gets so high. So it surges. A follicle that was growing in your ovary is actually going to release the egg. So once your LH peaks, that's when the egg is actually released from your ovary and travels down into your uterus. So that's when ovulation has occurred. That's the key point and the trigger from going from follicular phase to luteal phase. Once the egg has traveled to the uterus, it starts to form a corpus luteum, which is this yellow sac that the egg lives in, and that sac starts to release progesterone. And the role of the progesterone here is to really thicken your uterine lining and make it a cushion for the egg to nestle in, be able to get meet with the sperm and you create an embryo. Now, if you don't conceive, you'll see the progesterone levels drop, the LH levels have already come down, your estrogen is going to drop again and you're going to have another period. So that that usually happens at the latter part of your luteal phase, indicating that now the follicular phase will begin again. If you do conceive, you're going to see the progesterone levels actually remain elevated and the the embryo will start to release beta-HCG, which is not present unless if you are pregnant. So you'll start to see that elevate. And the progesterone is pretty critical to maintain that pregnancy. So you want to see those levels go up as you progress
0: you know, so those are the key players, right? But then how does that play out in the fluctuations that women see as far as, you know, you talked about almost like, I guess, degrees of what the levels would be and why they vary woman to woman. And then what that actually means, that variation.
1: So let's talk about the two hormones that I can really dive into: luteinizing hormone and progesterone. Since UVA measures both of those, the luteinizing hormone, and I'm like a key example of this. In the 18 months that I was trying to conceive, I only got a high five days, and I only, I never got a peak, and I was having periods. Not, I didn't get 18 periods in those in that window, but I was getting a period. So I was like, there's no way that I'm not ovulating, but I was not getting that indication from those L.A. strips using UVA. I actually learned that my LH surge is significantly lower than what those thresholds are based at, but I still ovulate because I see the progesterone rides happen quite nicely after I hit my peak. So really? Yeah. There's a lot of variability that happens on the LH side, whether, and it's because I have irregular cycles. Like that's just what normal is for me. Um, we also have other women that I've seen pretty interesting trends with that have polycystic variant syndrome. Now, this is interesting because there's a lot of literature saying that your LH levels are going to be elevated if you have PCOS. And I'm seeing that's not necessarily the case. We're seeing some women, yes, some do have elevated luteinizing hormone levels as their baseline, and they do ovulate. They're just, just the differential is much is different, right? They're hitting a much higher level for, for peak to happen. So for these women, they probably always got high or peak on those LH strips because they're way above the threshold of the test we are measuring at. But on the flip side, we're actually seeing a lot of women who have normal-ish or lower baseline levels that are saying that they have polycystic ovarian syndrome and are ovulating beautifully. So that begs the question, is elevated LH actually a symptom of polycystic ovarian syndrome or are these women being mis- misdiagnosed? I mean,
0: look, I am not at all surprised given everything that I have seen. And you and I have had many discussions on, you know, and this is why when I started figuring out where my impact was going to be based on my experience, I started out with fertility and then I quickly went into women's health because I realized the issues with fertility are really in all women's health because we just don't understand these conditions. And I think too, you know, one of the things you've said is Uva is not a fertility company, you're a women's health company. And so given some of this data, You're seeing, I think we're already seeing why it's important to understand your hormones because it impacts conditions. Now, does UVA track or do you have insights through other means around what also these hormone fluctuations indicate? So right now, what I'm hearing to summarize is, you know, there's variability woman-to-woman on what the average normal is, which could indicate how accurate or inaccurate previous testing methodology is, you should be able to better understand what is going on for the individual. Are there broader things that you're seeing as well outside of this aha around PCOS, which I know you're not at all saying, we're messing up the, changing the entire PCOS research (laughs) because I know people are working on that and I'm sure you're going to help influence that given these insights. So we'll just state the obvious there. (laughs) But yeah, and just other things that you're seeing outside of some of these examples you provided would be so cool to hear and anything you're able to share, obviously.
1: Sure. Yeah, there's a lot that we're working on, right? Like, so let let me hop into the progesterone a bit too, because that's been really interesting for me. We've seen progesterone levels start to rise like up to like three to four days after the woman has her LH peak typically it's thought that you're ovulating between 24 to 48 hours we're saying it could be a few days later so a lot of couples stop having intercourse right after their surge and now i'm just like no keep having intercourse until you get that ovulation confer- confirmation result because the egg hasn't started really releasing the progesterone yet get get the sperm in there because it can start it, it can live in, inside the uterus up to 48 hours so that's been Are you one kidding thing me? no wow. so that's been kind of a interesting game changer and the other one that is something I was surprised with, but I think it's actually brought a lot of ease to women is um, for women that have faced a lot of miscarriages in the past, they actually focus on using UVA to monitor their luteal phase because they wanna maintain that their their progesterone levels are elevated, right? So it's actually helped clinicians because that's another channel for us. Like we're actually working with various clinicians across the country to, to um, allow them to interpret UVA's results with their patients. But clinicians are actually able to make supplement recommendations for progesterone right after ovulation to help maintain a pregnancy if that's what's happening. So to avoid the chances of a miscarriage, and that's been pretty eye-opening for us too, because we're directly impacting care with our data.
0: consumer. consumer sector of women's health visit www.femtechconsumerinnovation.com to view the superstar speaker lineup and enter code fempower15 for 15% off your ticket hope to see you there with the progesterone this is something that i've also become really interested in i give a lot of credit to amy beckley uh who's the founder of prove and i know Mm -hmm. she i mean she was the first person that i hear like just went out there and said we got to look at progesterone Mm -hmm. and um, i had the chance to interview her last year and I also spoke with Dr. Laura Shaheen, who does a lot of work with uh, recurrent pregnancy loss and miscarriage and wrote a great book about it. And, And through this and attending other conferences, I've really become fascinated with challenges with women who might want to go to their doctor and talk about getting progesterone to help maintain that pregnancy and the type of progesterone that you need to successfully carry that pregnancy to term typically needs the prescription and not all doctors believe that it is needed. I'm just curious with the women that you're working with, since you brought this up, are you seeing that change? Are you seeing that clinics who are working with UVA or who do understand this dynamic with progesterone are much more apt to be able to give women the progesterone that they need to support the pregnancy?
1: Yeah, I mean, we're in over 60 clinics across the country, and I know of many of them that are recommending progesterone based off of the data that UVA is providing. So that's been kind of a big game changer for us. And I think the additional layer is that previously there really wasn't a way to know that the woman actually needed progesterone, that her levels were dropping because if you're getting monitored by a doctor, they're probably going to have you go in for a seven days post-ovulation blood draw. And that's when they're going to get your progesterone levels. And at that point at the time, time stamp, right? You don't know what the trend of the progesterone is over the course of, the days post ovulation, right? You're just looking at seven days post ovulation with UVA because we're getting all that progesterone data from like the beginning of whenever you started testing and up to 15 days, it gives the doctor a lot of confirmation that, okay, wait, the progesterone is fluctuating a lot and it's actually heading towards a lower level. Let's up it and let's give the progesterone supplement. So the trend analysis is really the key piece here.
0: What's interesting too, that I think potentially, could contribute to the misunderstanding around progesterone is I remember when I went to the American Society for Reproductive Medicine conference in 2009, one of the head researchers for the PROMISE trial was presenting and the data wasn't out yet. Soon after that, the data was released and it was just a devastating report on page one of their website that said, we were not able to conclusively show that giving women progesterone helps maintain pregnancies. But when I asked Dr. Shaheen about it, she made a very interesting statement that I think women need to understand, and I'd love your reaction to it, which is the way they did it doesn't necessarily allow for the answer to truly conclude what they were trying to do because apparently once, I think they started the test at women who were six weeks pregnant. And at that time, the The placenta starts to make the progesterone. So therefore you wouldn't necessarily need the supplementation then. And so it's really important to test earlier. And so that trial came out with those results. And I don't know if you've heard people talking about it and that also impacting the dynamic as well.
1: So when I'm saying that, clinicians are stepping in to give progesterone supplements. I'm talking about like the first week of pregnancy.
0: Exactly. We're
1: super early. Like they're only a few days pregnant and we're having them up the progesterone levels. So six weeks is way too late. Like most miscarriages are happening much earlier than that. Right. So like, I I think, yeah, that there's definitely a steady flaw there.
0: Wow. It's, I mean, and, but I think these are the important nuances to discuss because I was a chemistry major in college. I've been in industry. I've been on this fertility journey. I had very detailed conversations with doctors. And even with you, I'm learning things that I didn't even know back then. And it's just the amount of information that's needed is critical. And it's great to see that you're you know, monitoring this. Are there any other trends that and learnings with UVA that you think would be important for women to be aware of when it comes to hormone health,
1: trying to conceive... Women in general, we just always hold ourselves to some like unrealistic standards, and so when you start using like, and then when you come to your fertility journey, it's a very um, it's a rough journey to be on because literally what you're kind of dealing with is like my body's failing me and I can't do anything about it, and I think that's a it's a really difficult concept to kind of come to terms with and overcome. So what I love about UVA and what we're really trying to do is to empower women with information about their body. So stop trying to compare yourself to that typical textbook curve, that's not you. And what UVA does is we actually go one step further. One, we show you what your data looks like, but we also allow you to overlay what that textbook curve is so you can really embrace how your your individuality with your data. And we provide you with a report that you can actually share with your doctor. And now if your doctor is saying like, for example, let's go back to the progesterone, that you don't need a progesterone supplement, well, you can very easily show them your progesterone data and be like, well, my progesterone is fluctuating like crazy post-ovulation. If I am to conceive, shouldn't this be a little bit more stable and up? You have a case to make. And now you're having an educated conversation with your doctor rather than just kind of being that sounding board and hearing what they're saying and doing as they say. Now you can, I don't wanna say challenge, because that's a really strong word, but you can ask the right questions and get the answers that you deserve. So you're actually being empowered to be your own advocate. And I think there's a lot of a lot of talk about becoming your own advocate, but women aren't being given the resources to actually embrace that. And I feel like UVA is actually arming you with that data, so you can be, stand behind the numbers and be like, "This is what my body is saying. Explain this to me." And then what do we do so it actually behaves the way you want it to?
0: I love the way that you said it. First, I almost teared up because it brought back the way I felt in my journey. I mean, it was. I mean, even still to this day, I'm traumatized. But the way you said it, even as you were talking about comparing the data to the textbook, I've noticed my body just like comparison. Oh my goodness. But then the way you said it was so you can embrace who you are. And I just think that's so beautiful. Like, I want to cry again. <laughs> um, I
1: tell you, after having a kid, <laughs> I cry over everything. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, I mean, when I was pregnant, my husband was like, we have to take, we took off so many movies and shows off of the list. Cause he's like, you can't even get past the credits. Like, yeah, no, <laughs> it's
0: yeah, no, it's, I mean, it's just an emotional journey of like, I just, cause I, I really do feel for what you know people have to go through and it's not even related to fertility. And so speaking of which, you know, I mentioned earlier that we've discussed many times, this is not just a fertility thing. And, and I know you don't even want Uva to be viewed as a fertility company. So, so tell us a, about, that and, you know, what you've seen and why it's so important to, to view the the hormones and what you're tracking and what you're trying to do for women, that it's beyond let's get pregnant.
1: Yeah. So our menstrual cycle is so critical to our, our functioning, right? Like, yes, it's great to understand it so you can try to get pregnant. And I feel like women get more knowledgeable about their menstrual cycle once they have trouble getting pregnant. That's when we all become our, like the fertility experts to be honest, because you learn, that's when you like start Googling, what is LH? What is progesterone? Why does this matter? We're just not taught this early on. So we don't care about it. But really what we want to do with UVA is, yes, we can help women get pregnant. But the reason we're able to do that is because we're so accurate at measuring your hormones and understanding what's going on with your body. So now if we can apply that message across all of women's health, that's where we're headed. So like we're, we're scaling it really fast in a bunch of different areas because we have the hormones accurately being measured. So we're already stepping into menopause. We're stepping into helping you track your pregnancy. We're looking into postpartum care. So let's say we can help you actually detect postpartum depression before it, it completely engrosses you and you're, you have no more control anymore. We're helping women understand what's going on with their cycle after birth while they're breastfeeding so they don't have to go on birth control. If you're breastfeeding, like I remember when I delivered, I went for my six-week checkup and my doctor did the exam and was like, all right, get dressed and meet me in my office. And I'm terrified because I was like, I've never seen your office. Why am I going to your office? She sits me down and she's like, let's have a serious conversation about what birth control you want to go on because you can't get pregnant for another year. I had a horrible what? delivery. Yeah. So I was like, I'm not going on birth control. I am nursing my son. I don't want to put drugs in me. I'll be, I, I'll handle it. And she's like, you absolutely cannot get pregnant for 12 months. I'm like, I, I won't, but I don't need to be on a drug to, to help me do that. So mm-hmm. like that's like, Uva can actually help understand what's going on with your hormones and help you figure out how to regulate your cycle post delivery. Cause your hormones are all over the place. It definitely doesn't help with the emotions for sure. There's a lot of like applications for the data that we're capturing that go well above and beyond just helping a woman get pregnant.
0: Wow. I mean, this is so exciting. And I always enjoy talking to you. I could spend a weekend over a glass of wine and some <laughs> coffee with our kids playing in the, in the side and, uh, and talking about this because there's so much to be done and you're a true inspiration. Like I'm thrilled you're using your expertise to be able to help so many women and also your journey. First, before I ask you the question that I ask at the end of every podcast, You've got so many great things in that mind of yours. And I just wanted to give you the opportunity. If there's anything I didn't ask you about to prompt something you wanted to share with women, this is your time.
1: And this is like a lesson that, or something that I wish somebody had said to me, like very genuinely, I think like I knew it in the back of my mind, but I never really applied it to myself. And I hope at least one of your listeners takes this to heart, exercise self-forgiveness, this is the time to do that I and mean, like with the world that we're living in but like put all that aside when you're trying when you're on a fertility journey whether you're trying to get pregnant avoid pregnancy understand what's going on don't get frustrated with your body and just take a moment to understand what's actually happening our bodies are designed to do certain things you just need to crack that code don't sit there and beat yourself up about going out like for some college night when you had a wild night or being on birth control or taking certain medications or whatever like procedures you may have had done, don't beat yourself up about it. You're, our bodies are so resilient. Like we we seeing what my body went through during pregnancy, post delivery, and then now, like our bodies are amazing, and we should we should definitely exercise some self-forgiveness to embrace that, learn about what's actually going on, and then take the right step.
0: That's awesome. So beautifully said. Again, you're clearly such a kind hearted person and extremely knowledgeable and i just love soaking in everything that you have to say so now what is your greatest hope for women's health
1: the biggest thing is i hope it gets the the recognition that it deserves like i think it's starting um but i feel like um terms like femtech and like bucketing us into these like categories within women's health is actually somewhat of a disservice because it becomes like a fad Right? Like, oh, we're we're gonna all talk do an article about women of femtech, or we're all gonna talk about menopause because that's the hot topic now. Well, menopause has been around for since women have been on this earth. Like women, every woman is going through this change. Why is it a hot topic today? I think women's health needs to be given the importance that it deserves. We're like women are the majority of the spenders in, in families and in households. Like we're the educated ones, we're making the major decisions. Like, why aren't we being given the importance? to make sure that we can live our best and healthiest lives. And I want that mind shift to happen sooner rather than later because it's it's taking too long.
0: No, and I'm, I agree. I'm actually
1: quite disappointed that it's happening in phases. Like the past two years has been femtech and fertility. Now it's all on menopause. That's gonna be like the next few years. And then what? Like, no, these are all issues that are constantly impacting women. Why aren't we addressing this as in a holistic way rather than in these sad phases? No
0: not make any sense to me. No, I agree. I agree. Well, Amy, thank you for your time. Keep doing what you're doing. And I'll be following you very, very closely and having conversations. And when COVID ends, we are definitely getting together face to face. And I'm giving you a big okay. hug. Seriously. <laughs> no, thank you so much.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much for having me.